Okay. So tonight we are going to look at uh, what it means for God to be eternal and us not to be eternal um, and to be bound by space and time. So there'll be a little overlap with um, perhaps some of what I said during the, the Advent series on, on the Incarnation and Jesus sharing our limits. Uh, but that's okay, we're kind of coming at it from the opposite end this time. Um, and as, as I was thinking about this, I was mulling over to start with different kinds of people and the way they relate to time. Um, and I know where I fit within this, or if you can guess where I fit within this. Um, there are some people who are very relaxed about time. It's almost as if they feel they've got loads of it, kind of like endless credit at the bank to just spend however they want. And so they might be the kind of person who's often late, who loves to procrastinate, who's always putting something off until tomorrow. You might struggle to complete things, not because you're procrastinating all the time, but because you're a perfectionist. This is a different type of person. And you, you might think that you can always spend just that little bit longer on something to make it perfect, to make it spot on. And perhaps you've got, I don't know, 10 unfinished DIY projects around the house or something as, as testimony to that. For some perfectionists, that's really stressful. Some are strangely relaxed about it, but it's really stressful for everyone else around them. <laughs> Then there are the kinds of people who, who always feel frustrated by time because they don't think they have enough of it. Um, maybe some overlap with perfectionists here, not necessarily. Um, if this is you, you might feel resentful towards God or your boss or your family because they seem to ask so much of you, but they don't give you enough hours in the day to do it all. And so you can kind of become like a sort of time miser hoarding time, trying to squeeze maximal productivity out of every minute and cutting down on sleep and drinking more and more coffee to keep you going and planning out every hour of the day in Google Calendar to make sure you can fit everything in. And if this is you, you probably feel a lot of your time feeling stressed and preoccupied about the next thing on your to-do list. I'm probably more a combination of that and perfectionism. <laughs> That's where I'm at. All of these attitudes in their own way show, uh, I guess, a poor understanding of our, our status, who we are as time-bound, created, finite beings. We could even say that all these types of people are committing a kind of idolatry even, trying to be like God and acting as if we are not constrained by time. But the difference is that the, the, the procrastinators and the perfectionists often think they really are unconstrained, whereas the, the, the time hoarders, are they know they're constrained, but they, they bitterly wish they weren't and they resent it. Neither is a good place to be, and this evening we're going to explore, firstly, what it means for God to be truly eternal. And then, in the talk and the application questions, we'll start to think a bit about how God's timelessness 
can help us accept our limitations as creatures and perhaps neither waste time nor constantly stress and put ourselves under undue pressure because we don't feel like we've got enough of it. So that's where we're going. So firstly, what does it mean that God is eternal? We saw previously he's uncreated, so that means he has no beginning or end. And the Bible confirms this in several places. If we were to flick to Psalm 90, we, um, we would see Moses writing in verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God was there before the mountains, he's everlasting. Revelation 1 verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. You probably know Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, that's the language the New Testament was written in. So God is saying that he is the first and the last, the one who always is and was and will be. He never began to be. And that's not only true of God the Father, because Jesus also says in Revelation 1 verse 17 that he is the Alpha and the Omega. So Father and Son were both there before creation started, and they will both be there when it ends. So Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27 say, Creation will wear out like a garment, but God will remain forever. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are everlasting. Now, you could be everlasting and still live within time. You, you could still experience life as a sort of endless succession of moments, minute by minute, just like we do, where everything other than the moment you're in is either past or future. It would be a bit like how we, um, how we can plot out our lives on a timeline. So 1989, I was born. 1991, I moved to Cambridge. 1994, I started school. 1996, I had my tonsils taken out and moved to Wolverhampton. The two were not related. Um, you could go on like that, plotting things on a timeline. Except if we were to do that for God, the timeline would have no beginning or end. It would just go on and on in either direction. But we can't do that because God is outside of time. He doesn't measure his existence in hours or days or millennia. And so he doesn't experience things as past or future. Everything is present to him. This is, um, we, we, we get there in a number of ways, this is implied by the fact that he is uncreated. If he never began to be, there was no reference point for him to begin measuring his time against. So we, we can say that we're in the year 2023 because we have a reference point for the start of our era, roughly 2,023 years ago, when Jesus was born. But God has no beginning, so he has no reference point for measuring time. And what's more, if God doesn't change, which we're going to see next week, 
he has no need to measure time. Think about it. If we if we measure time, um, we we do measure time in terms of changeable things: the earth turning, the sun rising and setting, the seasons changing. And so we can identify one moment from the next because everything around us is in a a constant state of flux. One minute I'm happily eating my breakfast, the next I'm grumpily complaining because I bit my cheek and I'm in pain. Everything's changing all the time and that's how I I know that time is passing. And that's that's true from the smallest kind of subatomic particle to the largest star. Even if that change is really slow, there is always flux in the universe. But God does not change from one moment to the next. He is, we could say, he is maximally himself, always. And so there is nothing in him that could be measured by time. We can say that he lives in timeless eternity. Now, that's tricky, because some parts of the Bible seem to describe God's existence as if it were measurable by time. So if we would go back to Psalm 102, um, this is the psalm where the author is, is, is pleading for mercy because our days are so short and fragile compared to God's. In verse uh, 24, he says, Do not take me away, my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. So he talks about God's existence as as, as if he experiences years. Or verse 27, he says, You remain the same. Your years will never end. So it sounds like God does experience time and years, just like the psalmist does. The difference being his years are without number. They sort of go on forever. And what we need to remember here is, firstly, that this psalm wasn't written as a theological essay. Um, You'll see from the little title at the beginning of it, it's it's a lament and it's a poetic lament, an outpouring of overwhelming human emotion. So it's not trying to nail down God's eternity with absolute precision. And secondly... If you remember what we said last week about analogies, we have no direct frame of reference for what it is like to be God, apart from the Incarnation. So so we rely on created language and on comparisons with created things to describe his divine nature. And because all that we know in our existence is time, measured by minutes and days and years and centuries and millennia. It's impossible for us to describe God's existence in a way that doesn't refer to time, because we we don't have any words for that, because we don't have any experience for that. But even with our time-conditioned language, the Bible does show very clearly that God's relationship to time is different two hours. So if we, if we flick to Psalm 90, which Moses wrote, Psalm 90 verse 4, it says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. With the same thoughts repeated in 2 Peter 3 verse 8, 
A thousand years was probably the largest meaningful measure of time for the ancient world. I, I'm not sure if the average person had a concept of millions and billions. So the psalmist is saying that God can see and take in the largest measure of time possible in the same way that you or I would take in a day. It's an analogy. It's imperfect. But it's a, clearly a way of saying that God's vantage point on time is it's totally different to yours or mine. It's a little like um, the difference between a soldier's view and what will be the king's view at the trooping of the colour, which is the, um, the annual military parade that marks the monarch's birthday. I guess you guys might have seen a bit more of that in Edinburgh. Um, the, the soldier is marching along in his unit on the parade ground, looking straight ahead. He's not allowed to look left or right unless the commanding officer says so. And so he only sees the backs of the row of soldiers in front of him, and maybe you know between their heads he can see a few more. But the king, sitting up in the royal box, can see the whole parade ground spread out before him. So he can see whole formations of soldiers marching past as he sort of looks round, takes in one sweeping view of the parade ground. He sees everything. And that's because he has a different viewpoint. And God's viewpoint on time is a bit like that. So from the vantage point of eternity, outside of time and space, he can take in the whole sweep of created time in just one glance, as it were. I think the best way that we can describe God's existence is as one eternal present. He said there is no past or future for him, Yesterday, today, and forever, he simply is. And he can see all of created time in one glance. Now this is mind-blowing. <laughs> it's impossible to imagine quite how that works for God. But it does make sense of a lot of other things in the Bible. So if, if we were to flick to Isaiah 46... In verse 10, um, God says something. He says a lot in Isaiah 40 to, to 40 to 48. He says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So even at the beginning of creation, in ancient times, God knew how creation would end, and he could announce that to his people. And that is possible because he surveys all of time from his perfect vantage point outside of it. And because, of all, because all creation depends on him for its existence, he can direct it as he, as he wills. So God doesn't experience time like us. God is not in time like us. And that is pretty awesome. And it is also, I think, a great comfort. Certainly that's how the Bible applies it. 
it means that our futures are entirely secure in his hands. A God who knows all of our future and who is able to direct the whole of our future is a God who can secure our future. And when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, we get to call on that God as Father. And if we flip to Matthew 6, uh, verses 31 to 34, here's, here's one of the privileges of calling on a timeless God as Father. Jesus says, Matthew 6, 31 to 34. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, I know it's all too easy to worry about tomorrow. I've been doing that for the last four days, ever since I heard on Thursday morning that the Bank of England were going to raise interest rates yet again, and so my mortgage has gone up yet again, and then I heard that the water companies are putting up water bills by 7%, and I'm thinking, well, how am I going to pay all the bills? <laughs> it's very easy to worry about tomorrow. But Jesus says, I don't have to worry because I have a heavenly Father. A Father who loves me, we're assured. And a Father who holds all of time in his hands, so he can take care of all my future needs. He can take care of how on earth I'm going to pay the mortgage and the water bills and who knows how much council tax is going to go up by. <sighs> I only need to worry about today because tomorrow is his concern. He, he already knows it and he directs it so he can make sure that I will be able to pay the bills. And that means I can reorder my priorities for today. Meeting basic needs for myself and my family doesn't need to be my biggest concern. Again, my, my father knows my needs before I even ask him, Jesus says. And if he feeds the birds of the air and if he clothes the flowers of the fields, how much more is he going to meet my needs? Because you and I are worth far more to him than birds and flowers. So we can get on with seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. We, we can care about justice, about holiness, about putting sin to death, about loving our neighbours. And we can pray and seek for opportunities to share the gospel. And we can serve and support the local church and build up our brothers and sisters. All because our eternal Father knows our basic needs and orders our days to provide for them at just the right time. So that's one of many ways that God's timelessness is, is a comfort. But we might still be left feeling 
uncomfortable. If, if you if you read both Psalm 90 and Psalm 102, both Moses and whoever the anonymous author of Psalm 102 is clearly feel a sense of discomfort that God is so big and so timeless and we are so small and frail and time-bound. It's almost as if they worry that God doesn't understand how painful and difficult it is to only have sort of 70 or 80 years to live and those years to be so full of struggle and suffering. It's almost as if they're, they don't quite get there, but it's as if they're going to say, Lord, don't, don't you care? Why, why do you make us go through so much pain and suffering when our years are so short? <coughs> Moses says in Psalm 90, our days may come to 70 years or, or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Does God really understand how uncomfortable it is to be bound by time? Does he really understand how burdensome his commands can feel, like seeking first his kingdom? That can feel jolly hard work at times, even if he does promise to provide for our basic needs along the way. And this is where the incarnation is such a comfort. As God the Son takes on flesh, now, even if we were Old Testament Jews, we ought to know that God is sympathetic to our time-boundness and our frailty. Psalm 103, verses 13 to 18, he says this, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like the flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. This place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. So God doesn't resent the fact that we are dust. And it's not a sin that our capacities are so limited and that the best we can do is, is still so small. But how does he really know that we are dust? How does he really understand us? Is it because he made us? Yes, partly. But he knows it even more intimately because the Son made himself that way. He took on our dusty, frail, time-bound flesh. He united it inseparably to his eternal, divine nature. And so he knows how we feel firsthand. So when we go through suffering or through God's fatherly discipline, and when we feel like we want to scream out, don't you know how this pain dominates my days? Don't you know how little time on this earth I have to enjoy happiness? His answer is yes, I do know. 
Jesus says to us, I am the man of sorrows who entered into time, who took up your suffering and bore your pain. I know how you feel. And I'm not being cruel or callous. And I will bring you through this. I will bring you to the day when there is no more suffering and pain. And he can even say to us right now, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus knows our limits. He knows how we struggle by being bound by time. He knows that keeping going in a fallen world can be really hard. He knows that seeking first his kingdom really can feel burdensome. And he knows that we really easily forget that the kingdom rests on his shoulders, not ours. And so he reminds us that we are not created for endless toil, but for rest. Just as God made the world in six days, and the climax was the seventh day, the day of rest. So for us, the goal of our existence is not endless toil, but rest with our Creator, enjoying Him, enjoying Him forever. And Jesus invites us to find that rest in himself. Now we could say loads about what that rest looks like, but at the very least it must include stripping off all our unrealistic expectations of what we ought to be doing with our limited time on earth, or what we feel like we need to be doing in order to survive or to feel secure, and slowly learning to understand and accept his priorities for our lives and that all that he asks of us is the little each day that he gives us strength for. It, it, takes, it will probably take the rest of our lives to feel totally at ease with that. To feel like we, we know clearly from his word and from the sort of less easy to quantify guidance of his spirit that we, we know what he expects of us from day to day and it will <laughs> we'll probably always be battling with unrealistic expectations of what we're capable of in any given day. But he is calling us to keep coming back to him, to, to reassess, if you like. Because usually there is a difference between what we are expecting of ourselves and what he is calling us to. And usually, I think he is calling us to do less in any given day than we think. 
So all of this is to say that the, the incarnation is amazing because in, in some mysterious way it enables time-bound people to relate to a timeless God in a, the most intimate way. And, and in so doing, Jesus dignifies our time-bound existence. And he does it in the greatest possible way by sharing it. We so often want to be like God and break free of the constraints of time. But God says, no, that is just the way you were meant to be. And Jesus has affirmed that and how good it is by taking on those limits. So we can accept our limitations. We don't have all the time in the world, this side of Jesus' return. So on, on the one hand, we can't afford to waste time as if it is unlimited credit at the bank. Jesus does have a purpose for our lives here and there. But equally, we don't have to grasp onto it like hoarders. We don't have to endlessly stress because there's always more to do than we actually seem to be capable of. We have a yoke to bear. Jesus gives us a yoke. But with a timeless Heavenly Father who can worry about tomorrow, and with a sympathetic Saviour who never asks more than he gives us strength to bear, we can find rest and we can accept our limits. We, we can be comforted both because God is outside of time and because he has entered into it. Um, now, the application questions hopefully help to explore this a little further. Um, I'm guessing there will be other questions, so we'll have a bit of Q&A first. Um, but before that, let's, let's pray again. Uh, let's ask that God would help us to, to digest some of this. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we can't fully grasp what it means that you are outside of time. But we do want to thank you that you know the end from the beginning. You know every day of our lives. You direct those days. And you care for us as your children within them. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know our frailty. You know what it is for life to be short and filled with suffering. You know what it is to feel like many demands and needs are pressing in upon you. you invite us to come and lay down those burdens and find rest. Lord, we really, really struggle to, to, to find that place of rest and to stay in it. We really struggle not to take upon ourselves burdens that you haven't given. We really struggle to believe that your yoke is light and easy. We find it all too easy to believe that you are harsh and overly demanding. 
that we pray tonight and continually over the years you would help us to to, to learn the truth, to take it to heart more and more deeply, to be able to accept our limits, to know that you accept our limits, to find rest in you, and to find joy in seeking first your kingdom each day and your righteousness, knowing that you don't ask of us more than we can give, more than you give us strength for. Help us, Lord, in our frailty. Amen. Amen.